Hello and welcome to episode three of the Highland Bridge Builders podcast. Uh, today the speaker uh, for our class is me. Uh, so this is Kyle Fagala and we are talking on the legacy of C.S. Lewis. Uh, so with C.S. Lewis there's a lot that could be said. Uh, I would think that most of everybody here has read something by C.S. Lewis. Um, if you don't know that you have you might find out later. Um, and then some of you may be huge fans and then some of you may have never read anything by C.S. Lewis. And so there's a lot that could be said about C.S. Lewis. Uh, so I really want today to be more of kind of a look at his life in part, but really his faith journey. Uh, I think his, his uh, faith journey is really, really interesting, and so that's what I hope to get across today. Uh, I do want to start in case you don't know a lot about his life to kind of get us on the same page with a quick look at his biography, mostly taken from Wikipedia, so <clears throat> I did not write all of this, uh, but let's go ahead and jump straight into it. So C.S. Lewis, which stands for Clive Staples Lewis, he was born uh, on November 29th in Belfast, Northern Ireland. His parents were Albert and Florence Lewis. Uh, he was born actually with the given name Clive Staples Lewis, but it turns out he didn't like the name Clive, and so he uh, decided to name himself Jacksy, no real good reason, and then his friends came to know him simply as Jack, so if you hear his friends talk about him, they call him Jack. Uh, so C.S. Lewis was a British novelist, poet, academic, uh, medievalist, literary critic, essayist, lay theologian, broadcaster, lecturer, and Christian apologist. He did it all. Uh, he held academic positions at both Oxford University and Cambridge University. Uh, he's best known for his works of fiction, especially the Screwtape Letters, the Chronicles of Narnia, and the Space Trilogy, and then for his nonfiction Christian apologetics, such as Mere Christianity, Miracles, and the Problem of Pain. Uh, Lewis and fellow novelist J.R.R. Tolkien were close friends. They were both uh, English faculty at Oxford and were active in an informal Oxford literary group that was known as the Inklings. Uh, according to Lewis's memoir, Surprised by Joy, he was baptized in the Church of Ireland, but he fell away from his faith during adolescence. Lewis returned to Anglicanism at the age of 32, uh, owing to the uh, influence of Tolkien and other friends, and he became an ordinary layman of the Church of England. Uh, Lewis's faith profoundly affected his work, and his wartime radio broadcasts on the subject of Christianity brought him wide acclaim. Uh, he wrote more than 30 books, which have been translated into more than 30 languages and have sold millions of copies. Uh, the books that make up the Chronicles of Narnia have sold the most, and you've probably seen them on stage, TV, radio, and cinema. Uh, his philosophical writings are widely uh, cited by Christian apologetics from many denominations. In 1956, he married American writer Joy Davidman. She died of cancer four years later at the age of 45. And then Lewis himself died in 1963 from renal failure, one week before his 65th birthday. And then in 2013, on the 50th anniversary of his death, Lewis was honored with a memorial in Poets Corner in Westminster Abbey. Okay, I know it's a lot to take in. Um, if you've ever been to Westminster Abbey, that's a real high honor. They've got pretty much every famous writer, and, and he is there now. Um, <clears throat> so like I said, there's a lot of directions that today's class could go in. Uh, what I find to be most compelling is his faith journey. And so if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, he was at one point in his life an atheist. Uh, and then he obviously became maybe the, mo the foremost uh, kind of certainly lay theologian uh, that we know. Um, and so he went from being this shallow sort of organic Christian, someone that was born into a church, uh, and then he became sort of a proud, self-reliant, intellectual atheist. And then he ultimately matured into, again, one of the world's most influential Christian thinkers and authors. And so how did he do that? I think it all starts, so we'll get to our slide here. It all starts with what he calls uh, the journey for joy. 
and for him it was a lifelong journey. And this is not just joy with a, with a lowercase j, this is joy with a capital J. Uh, his autobiography was even called Surprised by Joy with a capital J. Um, and the joy here is not the same thing as happiness or pleasure or what we may think of as joy. It's a little bit more complicated than that and I'll try and explain it. Um, it's sort of this deep longing for something outside this life and that when you feel that, that's really when you feel true joy. Uh, it's a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy. And so I think that all of us have this sort of romantic desire within ourselves for something outside of the regular kind of space, time, and matter. Um, and we usually try and fill that hole with things in this world, and those things ultimately fail. I think if you talk to anyone who had fallen away from the faith or never had had the faith and then they find it, that is typically the story that they choose uh, to, to use. Or maybe like in an Alcoholics Anonymous situation, uh, they feel like they spent their whole life trying to fill this hole and never could. And so it's just sort of like trying to put a square peg in a round hole to find joy when joy is actually something that exists outside of the things on earth. Does that kind of make sense? Um, he sums these ideas up in Mere Christianity, which we'll get to, but um, he says that if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so this is the search for true joy, capital J joy. Um, and this is the sort of romantic feeling that C.S. Lewis felt, and he also felt like this was the central story of not only his life, but everyone's life, is this journey for joy. Okay? Uh, it took him a while to get there. Uh, I think it takes us a long way, uh, time to get there. Maybe we never get there until we actually reach heaven. But on earth, there is this sort of idea of like something being like a piece of heaven or sort of a mirror into a world that is to come. Okay, so let's kind of look at the stages of his life. There aren't a lot of great pictures of him, so this is kind of as good as it gets. Uh, but you can see him here as a boy. It's kind of interesting. He's put like, like a little monkey or I think it's a Santa toy on top of a donkey. And so maybe this is like the beginnings of him you know, writing fantasy stuff. I don't know. He's a creative little kid, and then this is him right there next to his brother. Um, so from the ages of, uh, you know, birth until about 10, 1898 to 1908, um, he would have had a pretty regular life. Like I said, he grew up in Northern Ireland, not high class, not low class, kind of middle class. Um, his parents were not very pious, um, so they attended church regularly. He was always there, but they weren't, as he said, interested in the details of religion. Um, and so most of it did not rub off on Lewis. Uh, he said that he was offered only the dry husks of Christianity. Um, and so for us, like kind of getting into a practical discussion now, I know not everyone in here is a parent, um, but as a parent, I think in his story, I'm reminded that we got to do more than just the bare minimum when it comes to religion and spirituality and Christianity. Uh, we owe it to our children to discuss difficult stuff, to discuss faith and apologetics and doctrine. And if the words apologetics and doctrine kind of scare you, or you think, I don't know anything about that, then you, you owe it to yourself to learn those things and, and to spend time with those things. And if not you, then someone else. Um, and I hear from parents sometimes like, well, I don't want to force something on them. I want them to figure it out for themselves. But I don't think we do that with anything else. I think if we want our kid to be a baseball star, we don't just say, well, like I'll give him a bat and a ball and we'll just see what happens. Like you train that kid, you take him to practices, you make sure that he learns how to do it, he watches videos, he goes to class, whatever. I mean, if you really want to be good at baseball, you spend time, this, the same should be true of Christianity and such a more important thing than baseball, right? Um, so we need to raise difficult questions, we need to wrestle with these things with our children, with our wives, with our husbands, together as a family. Uh, and so ju just dragging a kid to church on Sunday is just not enough. It wasn't enough for C.S. Lewis. Um, another thing is, is that telling a child that one ought to or that you should do this 
instead of allowing them to think through these issues themselves, is going to be shallow and problematic long term. Uh, and so this is actually why he says that he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, because he felt like it took the ideas of Christianity out of this sort of austere, high church environment where you're told these are the things that you're supposed to do. And it instead, uh, it thrust these ideas into a fantasy world where children could experience the core of Christianity without you know, being told that this is how it should be, which I think is, is awesome. So it's a great book series for young children to kind of get the ideas of the redemption of, of Christ's death through a fantasy book that they can uh, more easily um, get into. Uh, so another really interesting thing about this age, and, and uh, this is something I wasn't familiar with, but uh, he lost his mother, Florence, at age nine. And it's interesting because two other major fantasy writers, J.R.R. Tolkien, you know Tolkien, you wrote Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, and all that. Uh, he lost his mother at age 12. Another writer I was not as familiar with, George MacDonald Fraser. Uh, he lost his mother at age eight. And these are three of the greatest fantasy writers uh, in English language, and they all lost their mothers at a young age, which kind of brings up this idea of, well, is it in losing one's mother at that age that you're more spurred on to kind of avoid the realities of life, kind of create a fantasy world so that you can kind of escape mentally to that, to avoid maybe dealing with the grief of losing your mother. So uh, I did not lose my mother at a young age. She's right over there. Um, and so I'm grateful for that. But for those of you who did, you might see some parallels in your life uh, between that. So, all right, so then kind of moving on to the, the next stage of his life when he was a schoolboy and a teen. This is 1908 to 1917, roughly. Uh, and so between the death of his mother, it was in August of 1908, and then the fall of 1914, uh, Lewis actually attended four different boarding schools. And so he kept moving from boarding school to boarding school for different reasons. Um, and the last of them was in Malvern, England. It was called Cherbourg House for what that's worth. Um, it's interesting, you know, he's a famous guy now, but at the time, you know, he's just a kid, and he wasn't particularly popular. Um, he was middle class, like I said, and he was at schools, boarding schools, and a lot of his uh, students that were with him were high class, so he was actually like forced to do things for them, like do chores, and that was just like the kind of the way of things, and the teachers and the faculty were like on board with that, which is really weird. That w I don't think that would happen today. Um, but uh, he also had this like congenital thumb defect. He says that his dad had it and his brother had it, but their top joint like didn't really work, and so he wasn't good at games and sports. And so because of that, uh, almost in a social sense, he was forced to kind of retreat to reading and writing, which, you know, we look back on that, we're like, well, I'm so thankful he wasn't good at baseball and things because now we have his writing. But uh, it's interesting, all kind of plays into it. Um, it was here at Cherbourg House, and I don't have a photo of it, but it was uh, due to a lot of things that he kind of fell away from the faith. And so I want to look at some of those. Uh, he said that it was due to a lack of solid teaching. He had a frustration with, uh, he had a, a kind of a theologic, theology he developed around prayer where he felt like he wasn't praying right and it frustrated him, so he stopped. And then he had a lack of solid uh, spiritual direction and instruction. And so this is where I think it becomes practical, is looking at his life and seeing, well, why did he fall away from the faith and, and how can I apply this to my life and to my children's lives, whether you have children now or, or you have children later or whatever. Um, so there's three people that are sort of responsible, uh, you could say, for guiding him down this path towards atheism. And you don't need to know these people necessarily, but I think it's interesting to talk about it. So the first is a Miss G.E. Cowie, and she was a school matron at Cherbourg, and he called her Miss C. Uh, and he said that she was influential in his path towards atheism. Uh, she herself was spiritually immature, and she sought truth in these strange beliefs. A lot of them have kind of passed away, but theosophy, uh, Rosicrucianism, and spiritualism. Uh, and Lewis insists on this. He makes this clear a couple times he talks about her that he didn't feel like she was 
uh, intending to tear down his faith, uh, but he was so interested in the, the supernatural, or what he calls the preternatural, um, so like myths and, and North stories and things like these, you know, fantastical things, uh, that when she would talk to him about these different things that she was exploring from a spiritual sense, uh, that it was all almost as if she brought a candle into a room that was full of gunpowder. Um, and so since he was without orthodox spiritual guidance, without good doctrine, without sound doctrine, and people to teach him those things, uh, this really took seize on him. And so he actually developed an interest in the occult and other things, and through that, kind of lost interest in Jesus. He says this of Miss C. He says, I do not mean that Miss C did this. Better say that the enemy did this in me, taking occasion from things she innocently said. And it's one reason why the enemy fought this so easy was that without knowing it, I was already desperately anxious to get rid of my religion. So it wasn't her fault, okay? Um, but it is to kind of bring up you, in, in all of us a sense of the one or two or three people that throughout our children's lives and out throughout our own lives, if we're honest, can have a, a dramatic impact on us and they may not even realize it. And so whether you have kids or you don't, you might be the person in someone's life that could either push them down a path that is positive or down one that's negative. Um, so just something to consider. The second was a guy named Percy Harris, a teacher he called Pogo. Uh, said that he was glossy all over, well-dressed, worldly, in the know, intellectual. And Lewis, a smart kid, he looked up to him and, and started to emulate him. Um, he says that what attracted me to Pogo was not the flesh but the world, the desire for glitter, swagger, distinction, the desire to be in the know. I began to labor very hard to make myself into a fop, a cad, and a snob. And so little by little, with fluctuations which I cannot now trace, I became an apostate, dropping my faith with no sense of loss, but with the greatest of relief. Um, so we may have had teachers like that too. And then there was W.T. Kirkpatrick. This was kind of interesting. So Lewis, again, he did not do well in kind of the boarding school setting. Um, just it wasn't a good fit. And so his dad actually set him up with, I think he was like 74 years old. It was a private tutor that he had for three years, a really, really smart guy to prepare him to be able to go to Oxford, which he eventually went to. And so W.T. Kirkpatrick is this guy. He called him the Great Knock. Um, and this is from David Downing. He wrote a book called Into the Region of Awe. He says that living with this outspokenly atheistic tutor, William Kirkpatrick, Lewis found his unbelief reinforced by his reading in the natural sciences and social sciences. From the natural sciences, he gained a sense that life on Earth is just a random occurrence in a vast, empty universe. And then from the social sciences, he concluded that all the world's religions, including Christianity, could be best explained not as claims to truth, but as expressions of psychological needs and cultural values. Um, and so then in another book, it's called A Life Observed. That's what I read most recently. And if you want to know more about C.S. Lewis, I would say that is probably his best biography. There's you know a dozen or so biographies on C.S. Lewis, but this one kind of more deals with his spiritual journey and kind of a spiritual telling of his life. So A Life Observed, if you want to read that. Um, and so it's important to say that not everything that he learned from this atheist, intelligent, very logical man was necessarily anti-Christian. And so that's the other side of this coin is, is that even though he was influenced in a negative way, it ultimately becomes a redemptive part of his story uh, when he's older. But uh, it says that in his three years of rigorous one-on-one -on -one training with Kirkpatrick, he was taught to read widely, trained how to think extremely clearly and logically, and shown how to express those thoughts with the same measure of extreme clarity and analytical precision. Years later, the converted former atheist would put this training to use in writing Mere Christianity, one of the most logical and eloquent articulations to date of the things Christians believe and why they believe them. And so, Lewis, in his mind, always held Kirkpatrick in a really high regard because he, he kind of credits him for developing into who he became. Okay, so at the end of that, 
uh, he would consider himself an atheist and really have very little regard for Christianity. And so then moving into his adulthood, and I've kind of titled this Ups and Downs of Adulthood because I think his life is best understood as sort of a, a yin and a yang or an up and a down. Um, and we won't go into great detail of his adult life, um, but just know that he spent the majority of it in academia. He was uh, at, at a college called Magdalen, and he was uh, a don of Oxford, and he worked for Cambridge later in his life. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but when he was 18, he enlisted in the British Army, and so he fought in World War I. For about nine months, he got injured, and he returned home to, to continue his studies, uh, where he, it was probably a better fit for him, <laughs> probably. Um, and he actually, even though he was very smart, he, he would always get like first honors in certain classes in philosophy. Um, he couldn't get a job. Uh, and I don't exactly know why. It just says that he tried and tried and tried for a couple years and could not get a job in philosophy. And so he's forced to seek education in English. Um, and so it's interesting because had this not happened, I don't think we would have gotten the same works that we know him for. And you could look at it like this. If he had studied English first, maybe we would have gotten like the Space Trilogy, maybe we would have gotten Chronicles of Narnia, but we would have never gotten his apologetics work. Uh, and in the opposite direction, if he had just done philosophy, we would have never gotten the, you know, the, the more English-influenced works. Uh, and we may not have gotten any of these works at all because he may have just kind of continued down an academic path. And so he needed both educations to become the C.S. Lewis we know. And so it's, uh, there's kind of a beauty in that failure, as there often is. Um, and in another sense, if he had not been an atheist at one point and then become a Christian, uh, I don't think his works would have been as valuable as, as they are. Um, he, he was able to, to know both sides of the coin, Christianity and atheism, intimately. And it allowed him to have dug through both sides of the arguments at length, right? And so it puts him in a unique spot. And so like I would say, this would be kind of like my you know, main statement on C.S. Lewis's life and his, his Christian walk would be, he was uh, this yin and yang, which sometimes people are, um, and it gives them an interesting testimony, and I think a compelling testimony, is that he had the background of philosophy and English. He had this kind of, on the philosophy side, he had this very uh, rational or logical side. And then on the English side, he had this very romantic or, um, you know, a creative side. Uh, he was also an atheist at one point, a Christian at another. He experienced tragedy in his life, a lot of downs, and he also experienced a lot of success, wild success in his life. He wasn't like the starving artist who never sought, you know, found success until after death. I mean, he was very successful on earth. Uh, he was also, in some sense, a commoner. Like I said, he was kind of middle class, and he sort of always had that in him. But he's also an elite. I mean, he hung out with all these famous writers and authors at the time. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, he was sort of a layman. He always considered himself a commoner of the church or a layman of the church. Uh, he was not a trained theologian. He was not a clergy. And yet, he was also one of the foremost theologians. Uh, so again, ups and downs, yin and yang. Um, and this is what I would say as a takeaway, is that what often seem to be disappointments at first more resemble providence and purpose in hindsight. So the things that happen that seem like absolute failures, and I'm sure at a point in his life when he's in his 20s and he can't get a job and he has to, he's sort of forced and embarrassed to have to study something else uh, is actually a key to, to something really beautiful in his life, uh, which you could make that uh, application to lots of things. Um, and so it, between about five years, 1925 to 1930, he kind of moved from this uh, position of being an atheist and somewhat of a materialist, just believing that the world is what it was, uh, maybe that it had always been there and, you know, there was nothing more to it, uh, to being a, sort of an impersonal theist, to then being a personal theist, and then eventually to being a Christian. He talks about it being like a chess match between he and what he calls enemy with a capital E with Satan, and that eventually 
his atheism was put under checkmate at one point. Um, so just as we talked about there being people that were responsible for his path towards atheism, there are also several people that were, uh, you know, important in his path towards Christianity. And I think it's kind of cool to look at some of these names. Uh, some of these authors will be familiar to you. Some of them will not. But McDonald, Chesterton, Johnson, Spencer, Milton, Herbert. Uh, these are all really well-known authors. Um, he said he found holiness in reading McDonald and goodness in reading Chesterton. And these were at times where he was um, an atheist. Um, and so he should have probably embraced at this time like authors that agreed with his worldview. So authors like George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, John Stuart Mill. Um, and it's funny because he said that these are the authors, again, he, he's like, I agree with these guys philosophically, relig religiously, uh, and yet he found them entertaining but too simple and lacking in depth. And it's kind of a, con a continual thing that Lewis says is that he finds materialism and atheism to be too simple. Um, whereas Christianity he finds more complexity and beauty in. Uh, and this is a, kind of a, an amazing statement, is that an atheist who wishes to remain that way ought to be more careful about what he reads, which is interesting. So the guy was always reading, and it's funny, when you, when you read kind of him talking about this time in his life, he was like, I loved everything about these authors, these Christian authors, except that they, you know, one, one of them had a bee in his bonnet about Christianity. Um, and it's kind of a funny thing. He wasn't open to, you know, accepting that. He thought they were kind of silly for that portion of themselves, but he was able to separate it out from them. But it had an impact. Uh, the second guy was a guy named Arthur Greaves. Uh, he says, after my brother, my oldest and most intimate friend, uh, Greaves was a uh, Christian. And so he, from the years of 1914, so even before he was an adult, to 1963, he sent Arthur 296 letters. Okay, we didn't have text messaging back then, so you would, you would write letters to people. Um, and so it was actually in a letter that he wrote to his friend Greaves in 1931, I've just passed on from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ. And so that's about the time where he made that jump. Um, there's actually a book where the collected letters of these two, you can read through them. Uh, and then there was the Inklings. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, you, you've probably heard of the Inklings. This was his little kind of mastermind group. It was a collection of thinkers and friends, most of whom were in the literary world. And they would gather together at Lewis's office or at a bar nearby, and they would talk about these things. They would read out loud their works and critique them, discuss life, discuss religion, things like that. And so two of the members, Hugo Dyson and then J.R.R. Tolkien, were very instrumental in Lewis's conversion. Uh, there's also an Anglican minister named Walter Adams that he met with regularly throughout his life and had a profound impact on Lewis's faith. And so we sort of know this is that, you know, we're like, you know, maybe our personality is a combination of the five people we spend most time around or what, however that saying goes. Um, and there are times in Lewis's life where those five people do not lead him down a positive way, and there's a time where those five people do. And so I think it uh, goes without saying, but it's important, you know, who we spend time around and also who our kids spend time around. <clears throat> and that leads us down a certain path. Uh, John Piper did like a whole conference on C.S. Lewis, which is really interesting. Had a lot of people come speak. It was like a weekend. And he, he wrote a book or edited a book rather. But he, he sums it up well, I think, about C.S. Lewis's faith journey. He says that both Lewis's romanticism, and so the romanticism would kind of be the English side of his brain, the creative side, and his rationalism or his philosophical side brought him to Christ. His lifelong or current experience of the inbreaking of a longing he could not explain by this world led beyond the world to God and finally to Christ. And his lifelong experience of reason and logic led him to see that truth and beauty and justice and science would have no validity at all if there were no transcendent God in whom they were all rooted. I know it's a heavy statement, um, but I hope that that's what we'll kind of get out of your Christianity. I think those are two of the sort of tent posts of what that book is about. Okay, so let's talk 
a little bit about the legacy of C.S. Lewis. So why are we still talking about this guy? He died in 1963. He's been dead for a long time, over 50 years. Why are we still talking about him? Uh, I think in a simple way, um, he had a skill to communicate as a layperson. I think that uh, while there are a lot of Christian books that are meant to communicate to the clergy, as he would call it, um, he wrote books that sort of everyone could get on the same page with. And he also tended to write on issues that, all, that Christians mostly agreed on. And so he wasn't writing you know, books on you know, deep uh, you know, tertiary doctrine and things like that. He was writing on kind of the, the big things, the big chunks, if you will. Um, he was actually criticized by a man named Norman Pettinger in 1958, uh, who was a clergy, and he, he kind of criticized Lewis for being simplistic in his portrayal of Christian faith. Um, and then Lewis responded in a way that I, that I think uh, highlights what at least Lewis thought he was doing with his Christian works. He said, When I began, Christianity came before the great mass of my unbelieving fellow countrymen, either in the highly emotional form offered by revivalists or in the unintelligible language of highly cultured clergymen. Most men were reached by neither. My task was therefore simply that of a translator, one turning Christian doctrine, or what he believed to be such, into the vernacular, into language that unscholarly people would attend to and could understand. Uh, and obviously it's not to say that you know, all clergy writing things, that's all wrong, or that you know, all people with emotion are wrong, but uh, that's just the way that he saw it. A friend of his, uh, Owen Barfield, um, he was also a member of the Inklings. He described Lewis as three authors in one, which again I think is part of why he's so well known still today, why he has a legacy. He was a literary critic, he was a fiction author, and he was a writer of Christian apologetics. Whereas Piper uses kind of different but related terms, he calls Lewis a romantic, a rationalist, and a Christian. Uh, and so having all these different ways, you know, we talk about the philosophy and the English, uh, it allowed him to write, he's very prolific, he wrote 38 books, over 200 essays, thousands of letters. Uh, at the time in England, he was actually, uh, his voice, they say, was the most recognized voice in London, second only to Churchill, which is amazing, okay? Um, and he's actually become more popular with time, and I don't really know why, Maybe he's just good for this age, um, but he sold three and a half million books from 2001 to 2010, uh, and in those 10 years, C.S. Lewis sold more books than any other 10-year span since he had started publishing. And so he's not in decline, he's actually sort of in a sweet spot of popularity. All right, so let's kind of talk through some of his most popular works. Obviously, this the next six weeks will be on Mere Christianity, but there's obviously a lot of other stuff that he's written that, that people probably love. Is anyone like a fan of C.S. Lewis, or you are? Okay, what's your favorite C.S. Lewis book? Oh man, I should have not turned the slide over before I asked you that. That would have been here. It is, you know. Mm. Anyone else? I know Anna likes Narnia, right? What's your favorite Chronicles of Narnia book? Do you have one? You don't know. Great answer. Yeah, it's a good story. Okay. Um, all right, so maybe there's more of you that read other words. You could say mere Christianity. That's like an easy answer because we're, we're studying it, right? Um, so the screw tape letters, we'll go uh, with that. Um, I actually chose this as a book some point, like maybe eighth, ninth grade, because it was the smallest book. You know, you had to pick a book that was a novel, and it was like, it's very short. I don't know, it's like 80 pages or something. So I picked it because it was real thin, and, uh, and I was really confused by it because it's, it's not written like a lot of other books. And so... Um, it was originally released as 31 letters in uh, London's Guardian newspaper, 
And then it was later combined into a book in 1942. And I love this creepy cover. It's really creepy. It's great. Um, and so the point of the book is the letters are written from the demon screw tape to his nephew Wormwood, who's a younger and less experienced uh, tempter or demon. Uh, together, the two scheme for ways to lead a human man toward our father below, who's Satan, while dreading the strength of the enemy, or God. And this was his first truly popular work. It gave him international success, um, and it landed him actually on the cover of Time magazine in 1947, where he's got a little devil atop his shoulder, which is funny. Um, and it has one of my favorite quotes and ideas, and it is this, is that indeed the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. Um, and it's sort of like a reframing of this idea that the road to hell is, is, is paved with good intentions, sort of. Um, and I think that from a spiritual perspective, we go back a few weeks to where we're talking about in blog we trust, and we, we talk about Christian bloggers who I think the intentions are good. I think the intentions are um, to do what they think is right, and yet it, it, it's almost like paving a road to hell in some sense. And that's a strong statement to make, and so I'll, I'll, I'll just say that C.S. Lewis is making that. Um, but it's really easy to, to find yourself 10 years down a road and be like, where have I been walking? Like, I don't, I don't know where I'm at. So, uh, another book of his in 1945 is The Great Divorce. Has anyone read this book? You're, you're killing it over here. This is great. You're doing a great job. I'll just, we'll just continue. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, he drew inspiration from authors like St. Augustine, Lewis Carroll, George MacDonald. And what The Great Divorce is, is it takes its readers on a journey uh, to the slopes of heaven and hell. Um, and so it's filled with vivid imagery and poignant discussions on joy and redemption. And it asks us to consider the ultimate destination of every soul. Uh, great book. All right, the Chronicles of Narnia. Who's read the Chronicles of Narnia? At least some of them. Yeah, seven people. Okay, cool. Um, I've actually only read like two of the books, I think. So I've not, I've not read the whole thing. We're trying to get through it with our kids. Uh, so this was released between 1950 and 1956. I really want this set. It looks really awesome. Um, and it started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, even though that's not the first chronologically here, at least later, The Magician's Nephew. But um, So it's here that readers were first introduced to you know, the magical realm of Narnia, uh, Aslan, the Lion. Um, and it's also here that the wonder and the beauty of Jesus' death was rendered in stunning metaphor. Uh, they've made three films. They're actually considering making a fourth. It'll be with a different team of actors and things. Uh, this book has sold 100 million copies in 40 languages, and it will forever remain his most you know, beloved work and most popular work. Uh, another book, right towards the end of his life, uh, is A Grief Observed. Um, have you read this one? No? Okay. You should go read it. Um, and it's probably the most moving and heartbreaking addition to his writings. Um, and it, it chronicles his bereavement following the death of his wife, Joy. Um, he actually released it initially with a pseudonym because it was so personal. And so N.W. Clerk, and I think that responds in Latin to like the name of this clerk or this author is not known or something like that. Um, it was later released after his death under his name. Um, and I have not read it, and I want to. It's like next on my list now. But uh, it very candidly describes Lewis's anger at God and his struggle, struggle to find faith amidst his pain. He vents his frustrations, explores his grief, and he finds a new understanding of God's place in his life. It's very personal, very raw, and will resonate with anyone who's suffered the loss of a loved one. Okay, so pretty much his last major work there. Now, of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about mere Christianity, right? So we're going to talk about that a little bit, and then we'll conclude. So Mere Christianity it was released in 1952. Um, 
Well, that says 1961, so uh, I've had that wrong. 1952. It was adapted from a series of BBC radio talks that were made between 1941 and 44. This was obviously when the Second World War was going on in London. It was really terrible. They were bombed. Uh, he was outside of, of London and Oxford, and still yet it was intense. Um, it was uh, the, the original broadcast, and we'll study through these, it was three separate pamphlets. There was The Case for Christianity in 1942, Christian Behavior in 1943, and then Beyond Personality in 1944. Um, it was voted the best book of the 20th century by Christianity Today in 2000. And then in 2006, it placed third in Christianity Today's list of the most influential books amongst evangelicals since 1945. It sold millions of copies. I could not find an exact count, but probably in the tens of millions. Um, and so what Lewis was interested uh, in with this book, and I think why it still prevails is his most famous Christian book, I think, that or Screwtape Letters, is that he was trying to present a reasonable case for Christianity. Um, and he was also trying to answer questions that are very common, questions like, how could a good God allow pain to exist in the world? And asking questions about the universe and asking questions about morality and objective morality and questions that really, whether we've answered them yet or not, they are sort of in the back of, the, of everyone's minds, and when an atheist gives objections to Christianity, he pretty much covers all the basic questions that you hear. Uh, his desire was also to reunite the whole of Christianity, and it was not an attempt to tell someone what denomination they should join. Uh, he was interested in the major parts, what makes Christianity Christianity. I mean, the title, it's, it's mere Christianity. It's, 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 that's the way he's after. And he actually sent uh, the transcript of the second book to four different clergy from different denominations just to make sure that he wasn't you know, delving into things that he wasn't trying to. Um, and so mere Christianity, common Christianity. Um, because it's really hard and it, like a little you know, moment to kind of talk about a book, obviously we'll s spend six weeks, but I did kind of want to highlight some of my favorite quotes. And I know it can get tiresome listening to someone just read stuff off, um, so I apologize, but some of this stuff is so beautiful, I don't know how else to, to get it across to you. So here are some quotes. This is one about a living house, and I'm going to read a few quotes now. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Uh, and then this idea, this liar, lunatic lord, um, as you probably heard along uh, and many times, but I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying that really foolish thing that people often say about him with a capital H. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did, not, he did not intend to. And then two more, and they're shorter. 
My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust, but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And then lastly, and out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Um, that will allow him to find joy, as Lewis would call it. So, let's move into a conclusion here. Um, those quotes take a lot out of you. They're, they're awesome. So... Uh, there is one last quote I want to leave you with, and this was one I was not familiar with. I'd, I'd heard all these other quotes from Lewis kind of here and there, and I think they've really influenced Christian thought quite a lot. This one I was not as familiar with, um, and honestly, it's kind of become one of my favorite quotes, and I just read it yesterday. Um, and I think that we're in an age where Christian leaders, Christian members, Christian bloggers, uh, we are seeking to progress Christianity on a lot of the doctrinal issues that we discussed the last was 11 weeks the false doctrine series um and i don't know if it's just because we want to feel like that in the same way that leaders in the 50s and 60s maybe they progressed on issues that needed to be progressed on and maybe we're so so kind of dead set on progressing in that similar way that we we swing a pendulum too far uh but it just seems that way and so uh it's nice to spend seven weeks focused on an author who despite how smart he was i mean lewis who knows how high his IQ was, very intelligent guy, uh, and he was aware of kind of this minutia that exists in philosophy. He sought instead to unify Christians around the central tenets that are foundational to our faith. So he could have very well danced in the little mire and muck, and he, he chose to focus on the things that were maybe more foundational. And I love this. So he says that we all want progress, but if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. And so this can mean a lot of things, a lot of people, and you may not agree, but I would just say that progression that is purely for progression's sake is not progress. Um, and that really isn't intended to be an attack at anything in particular. Um, but if, if, if all we're interested in is progression, uh, we may be headed in the wrong direction. Um, okay. And then kind of a, a final statement. This comes from John Piper, and some things you just read, and they're just too good to not read. So I know there's been a lot of reading today, but I'm trying to summarize a man in 40 minutes, so give me a break. Um, but here we go. Uh, he says that one of the things that makes Lewis admirable to, me, admirable to me, in spite of all of our doctrinal differences, and they are significant and troubling, is his crystal clear, unashamed belief that people are lost without Christ, and that every Christian should try to win them, including world-class scholars of medieval and Renaissance literature. And so unlike many tentative, hidden, vague, approval-craving, intellectual Christians, Lewis says outright, the salvation of a single soul is more important than the production or preservation of all the epics and tragedies in the world. And again, the glory of God, and as our only means to glorifying him, the salvation of human souls is the real business of life. And so, it should be the same for all of us. As Christians, as males, as females, as wives, husbands, boyfriends, girlfriends, friends, uh, as doctors and accountants and financial people and lawyers and teachers and so on, uh, despite our human and cultural associations, our business of life should be the salvation of human souls. Um, and so my prayer is, is the remaining six weeks as we study mere Christianity, it helps reunite in us a desire to center our lives around the real business of life, the salvation of souls. 
Uh, and I believe it was this way for C.S. Lewis, and so should it be for us. Okay, that is today's lesson. And I hope you got a lot out of it. I think Grant is teaching next week on the introduction to mere Christianity. I could be wrong. That's about as far as I got through the book 10 years ago. That's great. Yeah, so he'll read this a second time and he'll knock it out of the park. So uh, I'm sure it'll be great. And so uh, I hope you guys are here with us next week.